The following podcast is a Dear Media production. This is Being Bumo, a podcast for the modern parent that wants to be the best version of themselves while being the best parents they can be for their kids. We'll be spotlighting parents and experts who are not only inspiring, but also willing to share with us how it really is. Because as we all know, parenting can be equally as rewarding as it is challenging. We're here to make your life easier, a little less stressful, and help you navigate through this complex thing called parenting. Hi, Boomas. Welcome back to another episode of Being Boomo. Today, we have an incredible guest that most of you are probably familiar with as she is one of the most recognized and celebrated supermodels of our times, Christy Turlington Burns. We talk about her transition into advocacy from the modeling and fashion world and how she eventually started Every Mother Counts after her own personal childbirth-related complications, an experience that would later inspire her to direct her own documentary feature film, No Woman, No Cry, about the challenges women face throughout pregnancy and childbirth around the world. Under Christie's leadership, Every Mother Counts has invested nearly $15 million in programs in Africa, Latin America, South Asia, and United States focused on making pregnancy and childbirth safe for every mother everywhere. Christy was named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People. We also talk about how we can instill advocacy in our children and the values that she actually instilled in her children early on. She also shares with us her own self-care secret that has brought peace and joy to her every day. With that said, here's our conversation. Hi, Christy. How are you doing? Hi, Chriselle. I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I'm very excited to talk to you as I'm a huge fan of what you've been able to to do with Every Mother Counts and just you as a person. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. So I always like to start off with a little icebreaker just to get started. I am always curious about people that I look up to as far as what their very first thing that they actually do in the morning. So what did you do today? The very first thing when you woke up? Ah, well, um, in this interesting time of parenting during COVID, um, I have to fill out a survey for my kids and my son was going to school in person today. So, um, I start by getting out of bed and taking their temperature and filling out a survey. (laughs) (laughs) So it's been a little adjustment to my normal routine. Um, but yes, I send that in for them, get, get, I got him out the door and then my daughter, you know, doing remote, uh, schooling here today. So that was my start of my day. (laughs) Amazing. And how old are your kids? So my daughter, um, Grace, is 17. She's a junior in high school. And my son, Finn, is in ninth grade and he's 14, but will be 15 in a few months time. Oh, wow. So they are kind of living their own lives and having kind of, um, I, I just can't even imagine because I have two little ones. They are six and two. So I can only imagine how busy and how different things are by the time they are teenagers. Yeah, I would say, you know, again, during this time, I've been really grateful to have teenagers because there is so much that they can do for themselves. And yet Mm. you still have to be there and sort of, you know, you know, 
make sure that it's being done, even if they don't need as much sort of uh, leading around. (laughs) Um, My daughter can, you know, get up during the middle of the day and cook something for herself. She even during really busy days will make me something and make sure that I'm eating um, during the day and not, you know, Oh, yeah. So that's a really nice thing as they get older. And then my son, you know, I guess he's in ninth grade. So there's part of me that you have to kind of surrender. And, you know, at a certain point, he's not going to be able to do things and function on his own if we keep doing things for him. So it's been a little bit of a, an exercise in, in trust and patience and hoping that the work that you've done so far, uh, has been taken in and that, you know, He will start to learn for himself if he forgets his water bottle or he forgets his keys or, you know, those kinds of things. But um, all important steps to learning and growing and becoming a, a grown human. Absolutely. I mean, I think the hardest part in parenting, at least for me, I mean, I still have a long ways to go, but I feel like it's just letting them fail at times and letting them figure it out. So they actually learn it to do it on their own. Exactly. It's the hardest thing as a parent because you really, you really you, you want them to be independent and individuals, but at the same time, when you can see how easy it is to like, just, you know, it doesn't take much to, to help or make a suggestion. So it really is, it is one of the most challenging things I think for, for this role. <laughs> right. <laughs> so coming from the fashion industry, I mean, you are one of the OGs, you are the biggest supermodels of our times. How did you make that pivotal moment uh, or pivotal move really to becoming an activist and eventually starting Every Mother Counts? Can you kind of start us from the beginning? Just because I feel like a lot of parents who are listening to this, they want to speak up and they want to become activists, but they don't really know where to start. So can you kind of share us with your story or with us about your story and how it all started? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because when we talk about my kids being teenagers and um, thinking about all of the things that I'm afraid for them to do or that I worry about, by the time I was my daughter's age, I was pretty much living in New York City by myself. So, um, so I, <laughs> I, you know, I was sort of, you know, rushed into um, an adult world and professional life uh, prematurely. And at the time, I was so excited because there were so many interesting people, and I always had this real love and passion for travel and seeing the world, and so. For me, as soon as I started working, which was really around 14 or 15 and and coming to New York City or going to Paris or going to Milan for the collections, like all of a sudden, you know, it was really, really hard for me to remember that I was a teenager and that I had to go back to school and I had to, you know, maintain my friendships back home. So I was kind of living a double life. And, you know, I would say the, the beginning of my interest in activism really was you know, as I just started to become, you know, a human, right? Like what we were, I was saying with my kids at, at the time when I was growing up, right, there were, um, you know, there were certain issues that started to matter to me, right? I was in a field where, um, and, it, and it was growing up in a time where HIV AIDS was very prevalent and very scary. And so, you know, being in an industry that was impacted so in, intensely or intensely. And then also my mom was very active as a volunteer. Uh, she worked on an 
AIDS hotline. So I was familiar with, you know, her efforts to try to, you know, to do something and contribute in some way, um, some psychosocial support to people who were really struggling at the time. Um, And there was so much stigma. And, you know, also I was a young woman coming of age, you know, in my own sort of sexual awareness and, um, and, and education. And I think to be coming into that phase of your life during such a scary time, you know, really impacted uh, me and my life. Also, my mom is from Central America. She's um, from El Salvador, which is a country that I spent a lot of time traveling to as a child, which I loved. And it's one of my favorite places still. But then that country was in a a very big civil war um, when I was just starting my career. And so to be connected to a country that was in such an intense place in real time also kind of, I think, activated some part of myself and my brain and my, Mm. um, and, and my sort of, uh, my, my passions to like want to do something and want to, um, want to contribute in a meaningful way. So for me, I feel like my activism has always been kind of a natural extension of whatever's going around me. Um, whether it's, as I mentioned, just like what was happening, you know, with public health or global health, my father ultimately, um, you know, uh, died from lung cancer and I had been a smoker in my teens and early twenties. And so that became an activism. Um, my first public health activism actually was around tobacco cessation and prevention. So for me, it's always been pretty close to what's happening in my world or how, you know, I get sort of brought in and start to understand and feel loss or feel, um, emotionally really, really connected to a cause or an issue, um, which then, you know, pushes you forward to try to find ways to be useful. As you say, I think most people really do want to be useful and want to engage in some way. And it's sometimes not easy to know where to begin when there are so many pressing issues. And I always will say to people, you know, today when they ask, you know, you don't have to almost die giving birth in in childbirth. You don't have to lose a loved one you know, you can find those things without having that personal affliction. Really, to me, I think the most easy way of kind of starting to engage is by thinking about the things that make you sad, that make you angry, that outrage you, that you don't think are fair, and and sort of starting there. Um, You know, it can be overwhelming, but I think it's one of those things that if there's the desire and the intention, then it's just a matter of trying to focus and just to, you know, start trying, you know, putting yourself out there, supporting a friend. If you have a friend that's very passionate, um, using your voice, using your platform, whatever that might be, talking to your friends in your circles about the things that, that, um, that, that mean something to you and starting there and, 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 and growing. Right. Well, that's incredible. So would you say that it was scary at first when you started to use your voice? Because I would imagine, especially back then, especially being in the fashion industry and standing up for what you believe in outside of the industry in itself, I would imagine there there was some backlash. So was it scary at first to be able to use that power and your voice when um, kind of your peers maybe were not doing so? You know, I I don't remember feeling any kind of backlash immediately, although as you asked that question, I'm kind of going back to, um, you know, there was a big anti-fur campaign I did um, that's a lot of people have done over the years. It's called I Would Rather Be Naked Than Wear Fur. And I did that in the late 90s. And 
you know, I had a personal feeling about the issue, but as a model, I had worn fur before that because it took me a while to learn that I had any kind of power um, in my field. You know, you sort of start as a teenager and, and you don't know that you have you don't think that you can say, I won't wear that. And I don't do this. And I, I, you know, I don't believe in that, you know, that, that was something that I feel like I had to learn, not just as a model, but as a, as a woman, as a person. Um, and so that's one of those issues where I feel like there was a bit of a backlash, not on me, because once I did make that statement and I kind of knew the magnitude, if I'm going to be in this campaign, then I'm going to live by this. But some of my peers, did wear fur again, went backwards and on their word. And I think I saw, I don't think that I would have done that, but I also was able to like really experience through them what that would look like and what that would feel like. Similarly, when I, when I quit smoking and my lost my father to cancer, you know, I reached out to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and to the American Lung Association. And I did a lot of public service announcements around that topic, around my loss of my father and my own struggle with addiction. And I remember when I reached out to one of those organizations that they were a little, Mm. they were a little suspicious. Like, well, we have worked with other people of note who have you know, they quit smoking and then they went back to smoking. And that can be really a dangerous thing for an organization, you know, to to embark on if that's the case. And so I was aware, I think, from that kind of feedback early on that I knew the stakes would be high if I did start to do something. And I think for me, that's the way that I function best. You know, like I need stakes to be high. I want things to be important. I want, if I'm, you know, I don't want to just do something a little bit. I really want to like, I want to dive in and I want to become as educated and and as, as informed as I possibly can be. And it's not to say that I won't make mistakes, but I know that the, I minimize the chances for that, right. By being prepared and by taking um, these roles very seriously. And obviously in my role um, with every mother counts and as a maternal health advocate, I went back to school a second time. I like, I am so um, immersed. It's like a, it's not just like a cause or, or a thing that I talk about. It's, it's something that I, I am so committed to that it goes way beyond like the work day or, um, you know, a a professional and personal kind of, there's no lines. You like live (laughs) and breathe and be what you, you're talking about, which is incredible. And I think that really, it, it takes that to be able to move the needle really and to make a difference. So let's talk about Every Mother Counts and how that came about. So we understand that you were actively acting as an activist with whatever was happening around you in your life that felt important and emotional to you. But how did Every Mother Counts happen? Was it after you became a mother yourself and experienced um, childbirth? Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Absolutely. I had a really clear idea of um, the way that I wanted to become a mother. You know, I, I, I'm one of three girls and my sisters both became moms um, much earlier than I did. And so I was a very, very active and engaged aunt. And I was actually in the room with one of my sisters when she gave birth. And through being that close and, and being there to be her support system and, you know, being so close to her as both of my sisters, actually, as new moms, as they were you know, parenting, um, you know, their babies and then their toddlers. I, I went into the experience or this phase of my life, like eyes wide open, right. I had given a lot of thought to, um, the way that I wanted to give birth. Like I always imagined myself, uh, 
having um, a natural childbirth, having no medication, working with the midwife. I wasn't as familiar with a doula until a few friends of mine right before I became a mom had worked with doulas. And then of course, you know, I found a doula for myself who helped me navigate the sort of the whole field here in New York City. Um, and that's how I found my midwives and, and the birth center that I ultimately delivered both my children in. So I feel lucky in that I had had a successful career. I'd gone back to school. I had started a couple of businesses after my modeling career was not sort of my priority. And so, and then I met my husband and I felt like I am so ready to become a mom. I I've traveled the world. I've done all of these things. And I feel like I'm not giving up anything really. I'm so ready to have this, this experience and to have my life enriched in this way. Um, and it's such a luxury to go into this phase of your life thinking that way, I have learned. Um, so when I delivered after a great pregnancy, I was really, really caught off guard when things didn't go smoothly afterwards. You know, birth itself was great. And I loved my midwife. I loved the place. I mean, I love the birth center, which no longer um, is active. And I love the team that I put into place. But I had a, a postpartum complication that is one that you know, you, you, there's no way to know right. that a woman will have that particular complication. I had a hemorrhage, um, that was related to uh, a retained placenta, which is, you know, when I had watched my, my sister give birth, you know, a few years before that, you know, I watched as the placenta, you know, happens right as it's birthed as well. And it's such an overlooked thing, right. In every book or magazine that you read about pregnancy, it's kind of like, and then, you know, and then the fourth stage of, of, mm. of labor happens and then the placenta is, is taken out and then you move on and it's so not focused on, well, there are so many complications that are related to the placenta. And in my situation, it needed to be extracted, which was incredibly painful. And I lost a lot of blood as a result of the active management of that complication. And so suddenly I went from this very empowered experience to feeling scared, confused, in pain, not understanding what happened, and really just like not anything I had envisioned for myself. And that experience is what really got me to start thinking about, you know, not only all of the women around the world who might not have access to the team that I had, who recognized the problem, worked together to make sure that everything was okay and that they were able to remove it and they were able to make sure that I was safe and my baby was safe. But, you know, also, it made me think like, gosh, we don't know a lot about childbirth. We don't know about it until right. we're actually in it or until something goes wrong. And I, I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think, you know, historically people try to hide things that are discom that are uncomfortable or could be potentially painful or that are scary because it is a very, you know, it, right, it is scary right. because it's important, Right. I think um, having those more open conversations, bringing both, you know, male and female children into those conversations very early on and just making sure that we are as familiar as we can be about one of these very, very most important phases of, of our lives should, should that be a choice that people make. And so I started thinking right away of like, I just need to inform people. Like I want people to know, gosh, you know, here are birth options. If there are birth options, people need to know, you know, what they are and really explore these, um, these before they choose where they're going to deliver, ask certain questions, really become an active participant in, in their maternity care. And then that kind of over time led to me learning about maternal mortality and just that the fact that, you know, back in 2003, 
the uh, global estimates were that more than half a million women were dying every single year around the world from largely preventable complications like the one that I had experienced and endured. And so just learning that made me feel like, oh my gosh, that, that should be, you know, so many of these deaths are preventable. We know what the causes are. So what's getting in the way of um, preventing these needless deaths from happening. And so I started to like, you know, slowly, you know, learn more, um, but then start to really, um, start to put myself out there. And, and one of the ways that I did that was by working with a a large NGO called care. There's a lot of work on poverty, um, alleviation. And I was able to travel with them when I was pregnant with my second child, a couple of years, um, later. And on that, that trip that we chose really, because I was pregnant and because I couldn't travel very far at the time, um, we picked Central America and more specifically, we picked El Salvador, which was my mother's birth country to go to. And on that trip is when I, I really have that aha moment of, um, you know, we visited a community, very, very remote community where women, you know, traveling by foot to have access to clean water, let alone, um, medical services or education. And that's where I sort of saw that, oh my goodness, if I had lived in this community when I had my first birth and complication, I probably would not have survived. And that's when I decided I was going to do anything and everything that I could after I delivered my second child, my son. Um, and, and that's what I did. So I, I had him with the same team, no complications. And as soon as I weaned him about a year later, I started, I I went back to care. I traveled with them again. I applied for um, uh, the master's in public health program at Columbia University. I like just jumped in with everything that I had. And I I made a documentary film called No Woman, No Cry. And then that experience is what led to um, starting the organization. Um, Every Mother Counts, you know, really was a campaign initially to just bring awareness about the sort of the global scale um, of this issue. And it was in relation to the United Nations Millennium Development Goals that had been introduced in 2000. Um, and, you know, it was really like this companion piece and this campaign to just bring more awareness and hopefully action um, as a result. And then, you know, after some time of really showing the movie around the world, traveling constantly uh, and, you know, every audience that I would meet once they learned about this issue everyone said, what can I do? I didn't know. And what can I do and how can I help? And that is what led to the organization really starting was this idea that there were a lot of people in the world who felt connected to the issue, whether they had a complication or had a great experience, they felt that others should have that same experience or should uh, or that experience if it were a negative one, that that be prevented. And so um, we really launched as a, you know, a a mobilization and activation campaign for people to be a part of the solution, um, to share their stories, to learn what were the models of care that would make and can make the difference, really focusing on marginalized populations who tend to not have that equitable access to quality care, respectful care, um, working on, you know, really investing on training of um, health workers that are at um, at sort of a mid-level, you know, whether it's community-based doulas or midwives or, um, you know, community health workers, people that are in and from the communities that they serve with that trust already built in and with a lot of knowledge and know-how 
And rather than just trying to make everything medicalized and everything, um, you know, hyper uh, institutionalized, and then of course, addressing some of the issues like racism and explicit and implicit that happen at the hospital level that has been impacting the health and, and, and wellness of both mothers and families for, for some time. Um, so it's become so much broader than it initially was. That initial film is was just sort of the, the beginning. We've now made more than 25 films. Storytelling is a big part of how we demonstrate what works and also educate the public about, you know, these other roles that are in the maternity care sort of ecosystem so that people understand that, right, doctors aren't mm-hmm. the only people that deliver babies, right? Doctors are for certain 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 pregnancies and midwives are a great option and a very safe option for most others. Um, doulas can be helpful to women no matter where they are. And, you know, that's one of the things that I think has been so meaningful more recently because there's more and more energy around doulas as a really effective evidence-based solution to um, some of these challenges that women and families. Yeah, it's interesting because I've given birth to two, two of my girls and doula was not something that I was even considering just because it wasn't widely talked about with my first, but with my second, I was a lot more interested in this subject because I felt like I I had a few mom friends that were talking about it. So it's it's great that you're able to spread the word about, you know, the childbirth process doesn't have to be necessarily just from a doctor. There are other options as well. Um, and also I kind of want to talk about racism because I actually saw the film, which is an incredible film or documentary that you created. And I saw that Black and Indigenous women are two to three times more likely than white women to die from complications of childbirth and pregnancy. So obviously the racial disparity is real. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about why that's happening? Yes. I mean, interestingly, in the beginning, when I was first making the decision to do more on this subject, and even in that first film, you know, we we did look at the United States, which was starting to fall behind at that point in time. Um, and we've just continued to fall further behind. I mean, today we are, we are uh, ranked 55th in the world for safe motherhood by the WHO. Um, and that's falling behind from where we were in 2003, which was 41st place. So the question has always been, why? I mean, everybody assumes that the United States, given right. that we spend more per capita on healthcare than other country in the world. How is this possible? Um, and since I became aware and started engaging on public health, you know, the obvious things that I saw around me, right? The elephants in the room were, at the time, it was pre-ACA, one in five women of reproductive age was not covered by insurance, um, which in this country, it puts you in a really, really fragile position, I would say. And I think understanding that piece of it, and of course, ACA then, you know, uh, came out and was, you know, made the the statement, at least that every pregnant woman, you could not turn a pregnant woman away, that every pregnant woman in this country, you know, was, was um, worthy of 
um, prenatal care. And while not every woman has, I think, sought out that care, I think to hear that from that level, um, you know, that leadership level, to know that 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 that, that everyone um, is considered in in the sort of you know in society, right? That everybody deserves a certain level of humane treatment and care, um, I think, was really critical. The other piece that was glaring that we've kind of touched on a little bit is the overmedicalization of birth generally. Um, you know, we have this de-emphasis on physiological experiences, right? And it's particularly in the West, particularly in the United States. And so anything we can do to avoid pain um, <laughs> and <laughs> opt for surgery um, seems to be preferable for a lot of Americans. And um, again, to quote the WHO, the re- recommended ratio of C-section deliveries is in the 10 to 15% range. And the average across this country oh, wow. is somewhere like 30 to 35. And so- by making that option so easy and um, and by making it seem so normalized, women are having, you know, surgery is surgery. And at the end of the day, that surgery is putting some women at a subsequent risk for a ruptured uterus or other complications that could happen that could really be fatal. Um, and so that's definitely been one of the contributing factors, just too many cesarean, too much, too much too soon and too little too late is kind of the, um, says so much about what the real crux of the problem is. And then always racism would come up. Those statistics that you mentioned, you know, that black um, women are three to time, three to four times more likely to die from a pregnancy or childbirth related complication nationally. And in New York, they are 12 times um, greater risk. And, you know, for Latino women, you're two times greater risk than a Caucasian woman and indigenous women, it's two to three times more. So, you know, all of that says is that there's clearly an issue around women of color. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence out there that says that this is nothing to do with education or socioeconomic background. A a college-educated Black woman has a greater chance of dying than an uneducated white woman. These stats have really, you know, been a part of the conversation from from myself and my colleagues at Every Mother Counts for 10 years now. And I would say in the last few years, they have gotten um, a lot more more space in our magazines, in our newspapers, on our front pages. And I would say that some of the real factors for that have been stories like um, Serena Williams, who, you know, yeah, I mean, I I would not wish a complication like that on anyone, but her story did so much to elevate this topic um, of Black maternal health, because here you have the most powerful, you know, athletically competent, like, you know, just awe-inspiring human who knows her body well and who has a voice, right? Like people will listen to Serena that she had to really fight for what she could feel was going wrong um, after having her C-section. And she knew her body and she was able to advocate for herself and get that, you know, get her team to, to, to listen. But there are so many women that don't, that feel disempowered when they get into these institutions that are ignored. You know, there have been a number of surveys that we participated in and um, over the years, but time and time again, you hear that women do not feel listened to, particularly women of color. And that's something that 
that needs to be addressed. And so, you know, there's been a lot of talk around, you know, these, you know, implicit or explicit biases in or medical racism, um, as it's been started to be called, and really trying to do more training and create more awareness around that experience of those patients. And it takes time. But having that front and center of any hospital or institution or any team or, you know, you know, whether it's you know, the the chair of OB at any hospital to say that this is something that's a priority, like we see these statistics, we do not want to have right. that experience felt by anyone you know, no matter what color she is. And so, I mean, I think those commitments are starting to be more common and, um, and, and people are being held accountable. Um, there's also a number of legislation that's been introduced that is, you know, has incorporated language around the, the disparity piece and racism. And so just the more that we talk about it, the more it becomes something real and the more it becomes something that can't be just sort of pushed off like, well, maybe it's racism. It's like, no, 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 it's clearly that that's a factor. It's, uh, it's, that's a guarantee. So now we have to work on what we do about it. That's great. That's great that you guys are putting it front and center, uh, keeping people accountable. Um, and, you know, I think that is the common thread in 2020 is that everyone has to be accountable for their actions at this point. And also living in this pandemic, right? I would love to talk about that a little bit. I would imagine that pregnancy and childbirth is scarier, more than ever, more challenging um, from fear to isolation to lack of access to hospitals and care during these times. Have you guys seen an increase in maternal challenges during these past few months because of COVID-19? Uh, I mean, yes, what we've seen, I think like everybody really in those early days, you know, we were hearing stories of, you know, there was just not real clarity on anything. There's still so much to be learned that we don't understand about COVID-19. But what we do know now about maternity care is that pregnant women are more susceptible um, to COVID. We don't know exactly why or how or what, but we do know that that's, that that's the truth. So early days, people who were pregnant were not only fearful of leaving their homes to seek their just regular prenatal care or to you know go and physically go and see their doctors, that didn't feel safe. And then the idea of going to the hospital seemed like right. the worst idea to most everybody because that was the sort of center of where one could contract the virus. Also, there was not, and the the sort of um, distribution of PPE was so lacking that you know we couldn't keep our health providers safe, let alone mothers and family members to come in to support them. And then there were policies being um, announced about women not being able to have a companion with them, not a spouse, not a uh, a doula, or um, you know uh, some sort of you know companion or support system. And that thankfully started to change with some advocacy. But, you know, I, we were hearing from both sides, we were hearing from families who were terrified. And we were also hearing from health workers who were terrified of having extra family members come in with the, with the patient, because it just brought in all of, you know, so much more to worry about. And there wasn't adequate testing. I mean, one thing after the other. So, I guess what we what we really learned right away was that a guidelines needed to be created. People didn't know where to turn for information. And so we started to compile that information, working with other um, partner organizations to really make sure that we were presenting sort of, you know, the most timely, accurate information so that, to help people navigate, you know, w- 
what were the policies, where could they go, what what were the risks, and those have continued to be updated. Um, some of them have been incorporated into like the New York City State Department of Health, other departments of health across the country, and then we were able to join um, Governor Cuomo's task force on maternity care early days. I, I, you know, like so many people, I was watching Governor Cuomo every day for sort of <laughs> any kind of reassurance that we were, <laughs> that we were going to get through this. And in that, I saw him be really uh, creative about the ways that he was thinking about um, how to manage the sort of surges in these hospitals and the capacity. And in those conversations, I saw an opportunity to propose this idea of, you know, I mentioned the birth center that I gave birth in, you know, when my kids were born, that birth center has closed as have so many others um, in recent years. And so, you know, there was a lot of effort already before COVID, but COVID was an opportunity for us to put forth this idea of, of expediting, putting back a freestanding birth center in Manhattan, for example. Um, and we worked with this task force to be able to sort of broaden the language um, to define what was a healthy and safe space for women to deliver. And with that, we were able to get this, uh, <laughs> sorry, I have some dogs that are in no the background problem. having a little, if you hear any extra noise. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that was another thing that we did that I think was really helpful and useful. And then, you know, I have a colleague who is a wonderful policy and advocacy expert who has worked very closely with policymakers for many years now on legislation that would really, really um, address some of these gaps and make, you know, becoming a mother safer for more women. And in this time of COVID, we were able to actually bring in even additional language to make sure that, you know, things like racism were being addressed, the disparity aspect was being addressed, that the extension of postpartum care could have a better chance of passing, um, you know, so that more women recovered for longer periods of time. And so it's really allowed us, I would say, it, it wasn't so much a pivot as it was an, an opportunity to really focus in on what we knew, um, on the work that we'd done, on the relationships we've built over time to be able to be, I think, pretty active um, right away. You know, it didn't take long to find ways to be able to put our energy and our resources and to also activate the incredible community of women and families that we have built over um, these past 10 years. So I'm, we are nearing towards the end of our time. So I wanted to go ahead and ask a few personal questions just to kind of close it off. I would imagine that you are busier more than ever today with more women needing support and access during the pandemic and all these amazing initiatives that you're launching and you have launched. But at the end of the day, you're a mom yourself um, and you have to take care of yourself during these times. So how have you been able to take care of yourself? Do you have any sort of kind of tips that you could give working parents during these times? Um, yeah, I mean, I think like everybody, we're figuring it out as we go, but um, I will say that I've had a, a very long um, practice of yoga um, and meditation. And in this time, I mean, I've, it's been steady for more than 30 years. However, in this time, I've really leaned into it even more. Early, early days, I joined a group of um, friends out in California on a virtual Zoom yoga class that I have, it's been my mainstay through this entire time. And many of the people who do it, I've never met before. I've never met the teacher in person. And it's just been exactly what I needed and a through line 
time to help me. So I think there's something in like, you know, a, a consistent practice, whatever it might be. If, if you know that something brings you peace or, or, or helps you kind of regain that sense of balance or gives you that moment to just catch up with yourself or, you know, feel grounded. And for me, yoga is that, but really being able to have that, you know, every Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday without fail, I actually missed it today. And I, <laughs> I'm off because I, I'm so, I'm so used to it. Um, so that's one thing I think that's been really helpful. I also, over the years have become a runner and in the beginning of the pandemic, we were outside of the city because we were on spring break and we were outside of the city and we just ended up staying for longer than we ever anticipated. And because of that, I was able to get outside a lot. And I know that's been really challenging for a lot of people throughout this time, depending on where you live, but as much as possible, even as it's starting to get so cold, just to be able to get outdoors, even if it's to circle the block or whatever it might be, you know, I think that that's been a really important practice as well. And so, you know, for me, especially when it was a little bit warmer, you know, just getting out and going for a run and not having, you know, like not having to sign up for anything, not having to really plan it, just like it becoming a part of my day. And I started to structure my work days around both yoga and running, whichever day I was doing. And I thought like, gosh, I usually try to squeeze in these things in my life normally. And now they are so important that they need to be central and I'm planning the other things that I need to do around those things. So I think, you know, in this time, as much as we can to try to prioritize ourselves, I think there's that classic analogy about, um, you know, when you're on an airplane and you're supposed, they give you the advice to put the air mask on yourself before you can put it onto your child. I think that there's never been truer information or advice for anybody yeah, more so absolutely. than it is for moms, right? Moms really, really need to care for themselves in order to be able to mother um, and do and care for everybody else um, in our lives and the people who depend on us. So um, yeah, whatever that is that makes you feel good. And I know for people, it's, it's different. Um, if you don't have a spiritual practice or you don't have a yoga or meditation practice, this is a great time to start. Like there are so many great apps and zooms and, um, you know, there's so much out there right now that it's a great time to be able to explore. And really it doesn't take a huge commitment to try, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, it's like, these are things that can bring so much back to you, uh, that you just have to decide that you're worth it and then invest that time in yourself. Absolutely. I personally needed to hear that. (laughs) Um, So what are some of the important values that you're instilling into your kids or that you already have instilled into your kids? I, I, I would believe that advocacy is probably one of them just because that's something that you watch your mom do and something that you're doing for yourself. Um, So can you share about that? Yeah, I would say um, that's, that's definitely true. And I, I will often say, you know, I learned more from watching my mom and sort of seeing her do rather than tell me what to do, although she did that as well. But I think the most effective are the way that it really, the things that stuck with me are the things that I saw and that I took in for myself versus the things that she said, don't do this, do this. Um, So I've sort of taken that approach with my kids. I've also, you know, you know, our community and the way that, you know, the people are in our sort of circle and the kids and families that they've grown up with, I feel like we do share a certain, um, sense of like 
you know, what is right and what is wrong. And the community that we've, most of it has really grown from the school where our kids have been, you know, since they started school and it has a very um, strong um, history in social justice. And part of me, I think early on making that choice for them was, I was thinking, yes, I want these, all of these values and all of these um, issues to be really instilled and be part of the entire experience for them. So it's just ingrained. And yet I also realized that you never just hand over your kids and, you know, you have to always be an active participant in that experience. And so, um, you know, I love that the choice we made is something that was a priority, but I also see that it just creates more opportunities to have those dialogues, you know, openly and regularly. And so, you know, always, um, you know, my daughter has been super active from the moment that she could be and started having ideas herself. And she's been able to travel out with me. So she is very interested in what I'm doing, but she also, you know, every course that she's taking, she's taking a history and racism in America. She's taking, you know, feminism, you know, she's, she's taking environmental science, like she's taking all these classes that, and, and again, she could be totally doing this on her own, but I have to think that a lot of what I've exposed her to has also helped her to see a connection, which is sometimes it's the invitation that anybody needs to, to engage and to learn more. And our son, um, similarly, uh, I would say last year was sort of the beginning of, for him and he, you know, they all, they pick a social justice project in the eighth grade at our, at our school and he picked foster care. And so it was such a great issue that is so important and does tie into maternal health, certainly, but also it was great to learn from him to let him be the expert in the house. And, and, you know, I feel like once they've had that experience and they've sort of followed their heart and, and, and what has been appealing when there's been a choice to choose from, you know, helping to encourage that, helping to support them when they are vocal at the dinner table, um, you know, like all of that, just keeping that, that those conversations open and, and, and knowing that it's so important to share, right. And like, I feel pretty um, progressive, but I've learned so much from my kids in the last couple of years that I'm always going to be learning and they're going to be bringing me new perspectives and new language and new, um, you know, new thinking to, you know, these sort of human issues. And so I think just keeping that open mind also and letting them um, be teachers also as much as we can, it gives you a lot of confidence or gives them a lot of confidence to keep going and keep, keep pushing and keep, you know, being curious. Yeah. I could only imagine at that age, they must be teaching you a lot of stuff. Cause even for my five-year-old, she's like, mommy, like, did you know that, you know, this X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, no, I had no idea. Wait, you're five. (laughs) So great. It's so great when that happens. I love that. I love to, I love to keep learning. I think that's one of the beautiful things about being a parent, right? Is you learn not only about the world, but you really learn about yourself um, constantly. And it's such a reflection and also such an opportunity to go back into where they, you know, to think about your daughter, right? At five, hmm, what do I remember about being five? And what do I remember about, um, you know, what I thought of this or that? It's, it's just, it keeps, it keeps us growing and it keeps us humble. For the very last question, if there's just one advice, it could be a general tip or something that you live by, what is one advice that you would give parents? Gosh, <laughs> one is hard, but I would say, um, I guess, you know, it's that thing to be present. It's something I struggle with all the time because it's hard when you're busy and you have, and there's always some distraction, but I really think, you know, being 
like truly being present, taking them in and really knowing, you know, taking the time to really know your kid and to know that they're, they're not you, (laughs) they are, they are individuals. And, you know, for me to, to know each of them as well as I think I do, and to be able to help them with that knowledge so that they can also better know themselves, right? Sometimes it takes us time to feel that we know ourselves. And I feel like we actually know ourselves better earlier on and we kind of unknow ourselves over time. Right. Um, So I think really to, you know, if there's anything from like, you know, I'm almost 52 years old. And so after this many years on the planet, you kind of go, okay, you know, what would I want? (laughs) What what would I wish I knew then? Um, At 17, I would say, I would want to slow down a little bit, you know, like it goes faster. Um, And I'm sure I wouldn't have wanted to hear that then, but, you know, from the place that I sit now, I, I I feel like, you know, and self-care, right? Like, why do you have to become an adult and be overworked to understand that you need to be taking care of yourself? Like, why don't we incorporate that kind of sense of taking care of ourselves early, 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 Um, how to self-soothe, right? Like as an infant, as a toddler, as a, as a five-year-old, as a 10-year-old. And how do you do that in the healthiest possible way? Um, I think. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Christy. Uh, where can everyone find you and Every Mother Counts? Where can they learn more and support um, the organization? Yeah, everymothercounts.org is our website and it's a great resource of information. There are films there, there are there are there's research there, there's a great take action page that has all the legislation that's out there on the issue if you want to dive in and learn more on that front. We also do lots of partnerships with really great um, companies, product partnerships, uh, strategic partnerships. So there's always, you know, we've really worked hard to create a lot of virtual events and opportunities for people to engage more deeply and to become a part of a community that really, um, really does care and, and, and really champions this issue and really fights for, for families and moms. Um, so I, yeah, please come and take a look and I invite you to join us. We, the more, the better we need, all of us need to uh, be a part of this in order to really make a sustainable change. Thank you so much, Christy, for all the inspiration and, um, yeah, thank you for spending your afternoon with me. Oh, thank you, Chriselle. Have a great day and happy holiday. You too. Bye. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and I hope that you guys enjoyed today's episode. A little announcement, we will be taking a short holiday break and we'll be resuming Being Bumo in January 2021. We will be coming out with the most amazing episodes for the new year. We cannot wait to share with you guys our incredible lineup for the new year. With that said, we are so incredibly grateful for all of your support through these past few months, and we hope that you and your family will have an incredible holiday. To stay connected with us during these times, make sure to follow us on Instagram at BumoParent or at BeingBumo. And also parents, if you guys need activities to do with your kids during the winter break, make sure to check out Bumo Brain as they have awesome live classes that are quite magical and the kids get really excited about them like superhero fitness, mushy math, arctic animal adventure, butterfly ballet, just to name a few. And also we have a learning program where you can get four to six daily activities every single day. So go to www.bumobrain.com to check it out or follow us and check us out at Bumo Brain. With that said, happy holidays, everyone, and I will see you next year.
I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. If you liked it, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe. It really is the best way to support the show. Also, if you want to see more of us, head over to our Instagram and follow us there at Bumo Parent. And to learn more about Bumo Brain Virtual School, follow us at Bumo Brain or head over to bumobrain.com. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.